Part 3. Converging Trajectories 29AR to 57AR Chapter 17. Mishra's Workshop The Imperial Court had changed while Ashan had been away, which was no surprise to the apprentice. In the years since the fall of Krug, she had left and returned a half dozen times, and upon each return, she discovered some new wing, or pit, or chamber, had been added to the court of the new Kadir the Falaji. Mishra had selected a site on the northwest tip of the Kerr ridges with a dominating view of the arid lands to the west. Through a trick of the weather patterns, this area was well watered and was swathed in trees so large that they might have been planted by the Thran themselves. They were some type of oak with thick, heavy trunks and long horizontal branches. Already, some of the quarters and laboratories were being nestled among those branches. When Mishra became Kadir, Ashad reflected, he wished to set down roots, perhaps among the great trees. This is what he meant, literally. The first time she had seen the site, she had trouble believing that such huge growths had blossomed in a land that elsewhere was bone dry and arid. Surrounding the grove of great trees, most of the smaller timbers, still great, towering oaks and younger maples, downslope had been cleared. Part of the clearing was for cultivation, but more of it was for smaller foundries and forges. Already, the residue of those forges spilled slag, the unusable remains of their industry, down the slopes and into the streams at the foot of the hills. The latest addition was a great barn that dominated an area at one end of the encampment. It was constructed of half hoops of metal with fabric stretched between them. Already, slave laborers were laying stonework for permanent walls along the base. Ashan let a slave stable hand take her horse and enter the workshop proper. One of the great trees had died eons ago, leaving a massive stump over 60 feet high and twice that in diameter. Misha had the stump hollowed out and converted into his own private workshop to rival the crushed ornery in a now-dead Krug. Now that workshop towered above her, the windows carved through its outer bark, lit by fires within. The windows were oddly shaped, formed more by the twist of the once-living bark than by Misha's own needs. To Ashad, the windows looked like malignant, winking eyes. The rooms within were similar, odd, strange shapes that resembled teardrops or spirals or multi-plane solids. Rooms rose slightly from one end to the other, or were constructed of numerous terraces, each with different machinery. Ashad had no doubt that there were additional rooms within the structure that had not been there when she had last been present. Such was the sprawling nature of the new Kadir's domains. One thing that had not changed was the treasure pile in the hallways, the remains of the initial looting of Krug. There was gold platterware and cracked crystal, gems spilling out of wooden boxes split by rough handling, and rare vases of blue and white glazing through longitudinal cracks running from rim to base. All of it was gathered to celebrate the power of the Raki of the Sawardi their new Kadir by acclamation of the Falaji Empire, the mighty Mishra. One wall had been cleared to allow diplomats, supplicants, courtiers, and other parasites to wait at Mishra's whim. Ashan did not have to wait, of course, and breezed past these poor wretches. She felt the pressure of their eyes as she passed and smiled. That was one of the good things about returning to Mishra's workshop. The workshop proper was two parts library, two parts workshop, and two parts throne room. A great dark oak throne had been pushed against one wall, piled high with pillows, resting on a carpet of pure regal purple, pulled from the wreckage of the palace of Krug. The throne was flanked on both sides by piles of books. There were books looted from Yodia and shipped from Zigon and Tomakul, huge folios and small personal diaries, scrolls and tablets, and all manner of journals bound in leather of beasts both common and forgotten. Ashna noted, not for the first time, that many of the volumes had gathered a thin patina of dust and had not been disturbed since their initial placement. Ashna thought of Urza's workshop, even cleaned and organized for their visit, it had a cluttered look. 
but it was a very busy clutter, an organized chaos, one that was continually in motion, continually evolving. The books in Misha's workshop might as well be blank for the amount of use they saw. Misha was not on his throne. While the others cooled their heels outside, he was at a great slate board, another prize of the war, that had been hung along one curved wall. Misha had been working in multicolored chalk, and out of the rainbow of smears of his writings and frequent erasures, there arose the portrait of a dragon engine's head, bedecked with arcane letters and illegible scribbles. Hajar, ever faithful Hajar, stood by the throne and announced Ashnot's presence, which was fortunate, for Ashnot felt that Misha would not bother to look up otherwise. Misha regarded Ashnot, and the apprentice can sense a tenseness, a cold spring nervousness in the master. He tapped the chalk against the slate a few more times, then tossed the chalk into its box and padded toward his throne. Report he grunted as he retook his place among the pillows. With each of her visits, Misha had become more brusque, more abrupt with her, elevated to the supreme position, and with the added responsibilities of running the far-flung empire, he had no longer any time to be polite, even if he had the inclination. Plunder from the Yodian provinces, said Ashad, proffering an inventory list that Hajar took. She folded her hands before her for a dry recitation. 4,000 pounds of gold, 6,000 of silver, including 2,000 bullion, 17 vases in good condition, filled with gemstones worth. Misha waved away Ashnot's words and said, Books. Ashnot sighed. Master Misha had become more impatient of late. Five new volumes on alchemy not in your collection, three volumes on optics, two on hydrox that may be of vital interest, and one volume on metallurgy in the Yodian style, which may prove invaluable. One on clocks, which sings the praises of its author records of gem cutting, tin smithing, and architecture. The standard collection of journals and diaries that will have to be read to determine if they contain anything useful, a large number of maps, most of Corlysian trading routes. Misha nodded, folded his hands before him, and patted his fingers together. Usable resources. Three new mines have been seized, bringing the total to 17, said Ashton. There were 18, but Yodian rebels pulled the main support frames out from one, choosing to seal themselves inside rather than surrender. Four foundries have been dismantled and are being relocated here, and they should be operational within two months. Smaller forges are being set up in the Sawarni marches. Lumbering continues in northern Yodia, but under armed protection. Misha nodded again and said, News. More of the same, said Ashad. The surviving Yodian towns along the coast are willing to pay tribute and swear fealty, at least on the surface. However, Raids and rebellions are common from the Sawardi marches south. As a result, any timetable involving Yodian resources is questionable at best. There was no shortage of slaves from among the captured revolutionaries and fallen towns. Ashnot was gilding the truth at best. For the first time, the Falaji were controlling a population not of Falaji blood, and with it, the traditional ties to the Kadir. A more heavily armed presence was needed in Yodia to control the people and guard the plunder. That tied down manpower and the Falaji hated to be tied down. Misha did not pursue the nature of their unrest in his new conquest. Instead, he simply said, And my brother? Still beyond the Kerr ridges, said Ashnot. The report always devolved down to this simple question and Ashnot's simple response. The plunder, the resources, the knowledge were all secondary to the activities of Misha's brother. As far as you know, said Misha. Ashnot sighed, trying to hide her impatience. Since taking the mantle of command, Misha had changed, and not for the better. As far as we currently know, ornithopters have been sighted all on the major passes eastward, 
but there had been no organized Yodian resistance. Urza is said to have established an encampment in Argive near the Corlys border, but Corlys swears neutrality in the matter in exchange for access to Falaji markets. Hajar made a huffing noise. Most of the Falaji considered the Corlysians as bad as the Yodians, spreading honeyed lies of friendship while driving the hardest of bargains. Were the Corlys merchants truly interested in pleasing the Falaji, they would have captured Urza and turned him over when Mishra's brother had crossed into their territory. What is he waiting for? said Mishra, patting his fingers together. It's been a year. The loss of Krug in most of northern Yodia has struck him hard, said Ashnot. He may simply be in hiding. He never hides, said Mishra hotly. He plots. He plans. He is still in communication with the Yodian towns. I am sure of it. And the rebels act on his command. He is waiting for the right moment. For the moment of weakness. Or inattentiveness. And then... Misha raised both hands to indicate the magnitude of his brother's imagined revenge. Ashad bit her lip, then said, If that is the case, perhaps we shall lay siege on the remaining Yodian towns and plunder them as well, denying him any further resources. Our dragon engines have been quiet for surprisingly long. Misha made a grunting noise and slid off his throne. He motioned for Ashnot to fall as he headed for a side door to his throne room. Ashnot followed, and the rear of the procession was brought up by Hajar. The side door led to a spiral staircase that corkscrewed through the once-living wood of the workshop. That, in turn, led to a postern gate alongside the massive stump. Misha walked through the new barn, a curious Ashnod and an impassive Hajar in tow. A few of the slaves built in the walls, paused to watch them pass, and earned a beating from their slave masters for their effrontery. The interior of the new building was a single room dominated by two great machines. Small figures, scholars sent by Zigon and Tomakul, and students from among the brightest of the Flaji climbed over the machines like ants over a carcass. The first of the machines looked very much like a carcass. It was one of the dragon engines, lying on its side. Its lower treads had been removed, and the plates along the belly had been pried loose to reveal the network of cables beneath. These had been uncoiled, like entrails, to reveal pumps and servos within the heart of the beast. Several small gems glittered weakly within the great wounds of the creation, but for the most part, it was an inert thing, a dead creature. Alongside it was a second dragon engine, which resembled the first as a child's drawing of a horse resembles the real creature. It was all hammered angles and sharp edges, and lacked the graceful fluid styling of the partially dismantled creature beside it. Its face was similar, but frozen in a parody of the original dragon engine. Its muscles were not fluid cables, but roughly hewn slabs of metal held together by rivets and welds. The second dragon engine was under construction, and as Ashton watched, the scholars and students managed to get it to raise a foreleg. It was functional, but it looked less like a living thing than the damaged beast next to it. It was injured in Krug, said Misha, regarding the fallen dragon engine, his face almost pained by the sight. Against one of my brother's accursed avengers. It survived the battle, but one by one, its systems began to fail. It faltered. It was paralyzed along one side, and then it went blind. There was nothing for it but to slowly monitor its decay. None beyond this encampment know this. Ashnot shrugged. You have the other dragon engines. And the same may happen to them, said Mishra hotly. I don't know what tricks my brother has planned, and with each new day, he may have more of them. Can you imagine what would happen if one of those engines collapsed on the battlefield? What if the enemy saw that my creations were defeatable? Ashnot thought about it, then nodded slowly. And my brother is capable of defeating them. This I know, said Mishra. If only I remain alongside it. But no. Instead, I chose to take an engine in a fruitless pursuit of one of Urza's ornithopters 
thinking it held possible hostages. A small error on my part, but a fatal one for this engine. If I had remained in Krug, this one would still be functional. If you remained in Krug, thought Ashad, you would not likely be Kadir now. But Misha knew nothing of that, nor of her involvement with Thanos and the Queen. She only nodded. Misha waved at the other construct. And this is but a shadow, a puppet crafted to resemble the original. It has most of the power, and none of the grace of the original. None of the sentience, none of the life. There are secrets locked within the dying body. Terrible secrets that are beyond our power to duplicate. Perhaps Urza. Misha's voice trailed off, then returned with iron behind the tone. Urza could. Which is why we must ready these new engines. New devices. To keep them at bay. Ashad said, Master Mishra, I think I could help. Mishra turned to her. You can rebuild the dying engine? Ashad looked at the carcass of the original dragon engine. It looked like a Karen, picked apart by beetles. She shook her head. Your own plans proceed apace. Allow me to return to my own studies, and I could give you weapons to defeat your brother. I need you to oversee the plundering of Yodia, said Misha. Only you know what is valuable and what is dross. Ashad shook her head. Much of what is valuable from Yodia has already been taken, or can be demanded as tribute, or has been pirated away to Corlys. You don't need me to scavenge, my lord. You need me to think, to help you build. Misha thought for a moment, and Ashad continued. I've had time to think of matters, both in my force rest as a guest of Krug, and later, seeking books and information for you. I believe that I can wrap a machine around the spark of life. I believe I can merge the living and unliving together. I can give you the army to defeat Urza. Misha rocked slightly back and forth, then shook his head. I need you to be my eyes, my ears beyond these walls. There's much I need to have done, and so few like you and Hajar here, who I trust to do it. Ashad tilted her head to one side and said, a pity. Urza would trust Thanos with such a matter. Indeed, it was Thanos the student who distracted you with that fleeing ornithopter, for Urza the master had trained him well. Are you saying that Urza is a better master than you are? A red storm of rage formed on Mishra's face, and for a moment, Ashan wondered if she had pressed too far, but Mishra took a deep breath, and the anger subsided slightly. Sharply, he said, What do you need to produce such an army? Ashan kept her gaze level as if she had anticipated this request. My own lab, away from prying eyes. She nodded in mock reverence to Hajar. Most of the books on biology and anatomy from the plundered libraries, a portion of the resources sent as tribute, surgical tools from Zegon, and slaves, both skilled ones, smiths and glassblowers, and ones that no one will care if they are lost. Misha was silent for a moment. Will criminals do? He said. Asha nodded sternly. Criminals, traitors, revolutionaries, deserters, those whose disappearance will not be mourned. What I am thinking would be distasteful to some. She nodded at Hajar again. But necessary for us to build an army to defeat your brother. That is one reason I would want to keep the encampment a secret. Misha paused for a moment, then said, Do it. I cannot promise results today, said Ashnot quickly, or tomorrow or the next. But with my research and your rebuilt dragon engines, we can hunt down your brother and destroy him, wherever he hides. My brother does not. Misha stopped himself, then nodded. Take what you need. Send me reports. I want to know what you're doing, and make it quick. My brother will not lie waiting for his chance forever.
Ashot added, You should know what I propose to do. It is not a gentle process. Misha said, These are not gentle times, and we are not gentle people. Do what you must, but give me the weapons that I need. Do what you must. Ashot bowed low, and Misha spun on his heels, retreating back up the hillside to his warp workshop. Hajar, his silent ghost, followed in his wake. After they returned to closed doors, Ashnot thought, the Falaji assistant would counsel his Kadir against trusting the scarlet-haired woman, or he would commend the Kadir on his wisdom and be relieved that the woman would no longer be a regular participant in Misha's court. It mattered not to Ashnot. She waited until both figures were out of sight, then she allowed a slow smile to spread across her face. She had gotten what she wanted, her own shop, and the freedom to pursue her own studies. And she had learned something else. Whatever Misha was, he was afraid. Afraid of his brother. Afraid of being punished for stealing his brother's woman, for destroying his brother's house, for breaking his brother's toys. It was a useful tool to use in dealing with the new Kadir, but one she had to be careful not to blunt with overuse. Speak the magic word, and the gates to the treasure swing open, she said to herself, thinking of an old Falaji legend. And the secret word is Urza. She watched the ants scuttle over the two dragon engine carcasses, stripping one life to provide for the other. Then, she returned to her own quarters to finalize her plans for the future. 